Lord willing, plan is to begin next week in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, again, spending a couple weeks looking at some of these passages in the book of Acts, where Paul is in the region of Galatia, to which he would later write the book of Galatians. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, I'll read the whole chapter. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commanded, commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we 
know that you are the everlasting and eternal God, and we again thank you that we have this opportunity to come together on your day to worship your great name. Lord, may we do that with heart and soul and body and mind and strength dedicated to you, fully focused on you, on walking with you, on knowing you, and on worshiping you. Lord, we pray for our time in your word, that we be pointed to the gospel, that we be strengthened in the faith, that we would be nurtured in our relationship with you. And above all, that we would see that Jesus is the light of the world and the Lord who takes away sin. In Jesus' name, amen. So in last week's passage, we saw that Paul and Barnabas came into Antioch, which was a town in the Roman province of Galatia. And a common tactic that Paul used when traveling to a new town was that he would begin in the synagogue and preach to Jewish people. And that was a logical starting place for Paul, who had been Jewish and converted to Christianity. He understood Jewish culture and customs and beliefs. And so that's where we began last week. Paul was invited to speak at the synagogue in chapter 13. And he preached from familiar Old Testament passages. He talked about the Exodus and then the Israelite monarchy. But he would eventually tie that to Jesus as the promised son of David. Now, I didn't really talk about this last week, but it's something that's relevant both to last week's passage and again to today's passage, and that's this dichotomy between Jew and Gentile. By the way, a Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. So probably almost everyone, if not everyone, in this room. So thanks be to God for spreading the gospel, gospel to the Gentiles as well. Sometimes the New Testament will instead use the word Greek as being synonymous with the Gentile world. The gospel went from a Greco-Roman world, and so in a sense, you had the Jewish people, and then in those communities, everyone else was Greco-Roman. The Jews were God's chosen people. Jesus was Jewish. His ministry largely took place and was directed towards Jewish people. But there are also glimpses we see in the Gospels of that message being for the whole world. It was first proclaimed to the Jewish people and then to the Gentiles. The earliest converts to Christianity were Jewish people. And the reason why I'm bringing that up and the reason why it matters is, again, because it's pointing to a worldwide mission and a worldwide gospel. In last week's passage... Again, Paul began in a synagogue, basically a Jewish church service, but we also see Gentiles responding to the gospel. Now, for just a moment, I want to revisit a section towards the end of chapter 13, where we were last week. We didn't get a whole lot of time to talk about this. Chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. After Paul had preached, it says, The next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So you have the gospel being preached to the Jewish people. Some are coming to faith. Others are actively working against Paul. Verses 46 and 47. 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I think I was off on that slide if you're confused. And we'll see a similar pattern in chapter 14, where Paul first preaches the gospel to the Jewish people, and after being rejected, preaches to the Gentiles. And again, the reason why I keep bringing this up is that the gospel is a worldwide message. Jesus came into the world as the promised Savior of Israel, but that message of salvation has been for the whole world. It appears in Paul's ministry that even though he himself had been a prominent Jewish Pharisee, that he primarily saw himself as a preacher to the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 11, verse 13, Paul says, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul would also reflect on this when he wrote his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So back in Acts, at the end of chapter 13, among the opposition, we see Paul and Barnabas departing from Antioch. Chapter 13, verse 51, said that they fled to Iconium, which was another city in Galatia about 90 miles from Antioch. Again, they preached first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Some respond in faith, some don't. And with that, we come to chapter 14 and begin with Paul now arriving in Iconium. And we'll look at our passage today in three scenes. First scene, preaching the gospel. It's a map, by the way. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I've already talked about this, and similarly to where we began last week, we see Paul begin his strategy by starting in the synagogue. And the text says a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Just as last week, we see the gospel bearing fruit. But in another similarity to last week, there are also those opposed to the message. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. However, that little bit of opposition does not stop Paul and Barnabas. Verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So they're spreading the gospel. And we see the Lord blessing their ministry with signs and wonders. I'll have more on that subject in just a moment. Verses 4 and 5. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. And so we see the heat getting turned up on Paul and Barnabas. It's the second city in Galatia that we see them driven out of. Verses 6 and 7. 
They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and of the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So they move on, just as they did at the end of our passage last week. They had gone from Antioch to Iconium. Now they go from Iconium to Lystra. Now, a moment ago, the passage mentioned that while they were ministering in Iconium, they had done signs and wonders. I want to talk about that for just a couple moments. Signs and wonders are something we see numerous places in the book of Acts. It's not even the final time we'll see them in this passage. Some churches today still make a big emphasis on signs and wonders, on the miraculous. I've seen videos of pastors allegedly raising people from the dead. I think it's basically a second-rate magic trick. In the Bible itself, miracles are not a constant. They tend to be concentrated in three periods of history. During the ministry of Moses, when the Lord was leading the Israelites out of Egypt and leading them through the wilderness and bringing them to the promised land. We see them later in Israel's history during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And then certainly we see them during the ministry of Jesus and into the apostolic age. Does God still work in miraculous ways today? I'll get the most obvious statement out of the way. Obviously, God is able to. God is almighty. We talked about miracles last spring. I think that there are still times when God acts supernaturally in the world. But it is not the common way how he interacts with his world. And I think that for churches who have an expectation of seeing signs and wonders, that that can get misguided. While God can do signs and wonders, God also acts through his people. Signs were utilized during the ministry of Jesus to point to deeper realities about who he is, to fulfill prophecies from the Old Testament, and to display his own power and glory. Signs and wonders in the early church confirmed that the apostles were continuing that work of Jesus in the world and acting with divine authority. They were also coming at a time when Christianity was new. There's a rebellion Christians today. God can act through signs and wonders, but the more ordinary means by which the Lord engages in the world is through his church and through his people being the hands and feet of Christ in the world. Again, miracles do happen. Raise your hand if you think you've ever personally witnessed something miraculous. Several people, not surprising. But that's the exception, not the rule. And you might see or experience something miraculous in your lifetime, but how often does that happen? Once, twice, a couple times? Over maybe several decades of life? Now, just because we aren't constantly being dazzled with miraculous signs does not mean that God is any less at work. Every believer in the gospel today has been endowed by God's Holy Spirit. We have God's holy word, the scriptures. We have a fuller picture of God's redemptive plan through the gospel. I know it's so often a temptation to look at passages in the Bible where there are signs and wonders and think, oh, I wish I had that. It'd be so much easier to believe. But we so rarely 
if ever, fully embrace all the many tools at our disposal that we have to know God, his word, his spirit, his church, and his gospel. Sure, lots of Christians read the Bible and pray, but do we do it with a hunger and a desperation to know God? Because if we're not careful, it can easily be something that we just do just to check a box for the day. Now, God is good, and he is faithful, and he can still bless that. But do you see the difference? Is God's word a treasure to you? Is it, as the psalmist says, the sweetness of honey on your lips? Or is it just some nice moral lessons and some nice stories? How we view the word matters. The same goes with prayer. That prayer is an opportunity to spend time and to commune with the Almighty. But for so many, it's just like an Amazon wish list. Yes, we go to church, but how do we truly view it? Again, my point isn't to make accusations, but we do live in a society where saying that you're a Christian costs very little, and where being a nominal Christian is very easy. It can be very easy to go to church, to see some friends, hear some songs, hear a sermon that will hopefully be tolerable, maybe even entertaining, maybe even practical. But the church itself is a tool that God has given us, both for making disciples and for us being shaped and conformed as disciples through the fellowship of other believers, like knives sharpening knives. And then there's the gospel itself. The message that we were dead in sin, but that we have the promise of eternal life through faith in Christ. What is that to you? Is the gospel the oxygen supply in a world without air? Is the gospel to you water in a desert of sin? Is it your light in a world of darkness? Or is it just something where you say, sure, I'll have that. That sounds all right. But you just kind of keep on doing what you want to do, living life the way you want to live it. We have the tools to more deeply and fully know God already. The challenge is that so often, for so many of us, we don't really utilize them. Loving the Lord with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. That brings us to our second scene. A hostile response. Paul and Barnabas move on from Iconium, and with that, we'll move with them into verse 8. It's another example of signs and wonders as Paul encounters a man who could not walk, and he's miraculously healed. We'll look at verses 8 through 10. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. It's incredible. This man who has never walked can now walk. And we see the response of the crowd. And it's another reason why signs and wonders are not always what they're cracked up to be. Verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The people misinterpret the sign. 
I was reading in my Bible this morning, I think it's Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus is talking to the people. And he says basically that the signs that he does, they won't rightly interpret. They'll misunderstand. Preached from John chapter 6 a couple of years ago, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Once again, he talks about how they're drawn to that miracle because they got a free meal. They don't look beyond it to what it's pointing to. The people experience and witness this miraculous sign of a man who could not walk, walking. And they misinterpret it and think that Paul and Barnabas themselves are gods. When the purpose of the sign instead was to point people to the true God. They want to venerate Paul and Barnabas. The people at Lystra compare them to Greek gods, verses 12 and 13. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. The situation is getting out of hand. Zeus was the chief of the gods in the Greek worldview. Again, he doesn't exist, but to the Greek world, he was their main god. Hermes was his main messenger god. And that's who they think Paul and Barnabas are. Verse 14. We see the response of Paul and Barnabas. How would you respond if someone worshipped you as a god? The text says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out. And in the Bible, just as a reminder, tearing one's garments is something that is meant to show a response negatively to sin. They don't think it's funny. They don't think it's cute. They don't think it's amusing. They are horrified. What the people think is blasphemous. And Paul and Barnabas want no part of that. Now, we saw last week where Paul was ministering to a Jewish audience, and he utilized the Old Testament to point to Jesus. But here, he's before a pagan Greco-Roman audience in Lystra. They won't understand the Old Testament references. So instead, he will point the crowd towards a living and transcendent God. I think I, Howard Marshall, is helpful in framing this as Paul basically has to start a step back with this group from where he was in last week's chapter when speaking to a Jewish audience. And again, that's another important reminder in our sharing of the gospel with others, that we must begin where they are. Yes, we probably are not going to be in this same situation where we're interacting with pagan Greeks, but we meet and engage with people who have different levels of biblical knowledge, different levels of familiarity with the church or a lack thereof. People are not all the same. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Again, instead of assuming that the audience will have a Jewish worldview, Paul begins with where the audience is. They might not know the scriptures, 
And so Paul instead points to the natural world, to the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul and Barnabas came to Lystra as ordinary men who had an extraordinary message of a loving and redemptive God. As Paul says, they came bringing the good news. And the good news is the gospel of salvation. Verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. While the Lord allowed for a world where the nations could go their own way, God has also revealed himself through his creation. Verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. A couple of points. One, where he says that God did not leave himself without witness. That's very similar to how Paul begins his letter to the Romans, talking of natural revelation and how God has pointed to himself through his own creation. And then Paul points to things like fruitful seasons and rains, pointing to the sustaining work that the Lord has done for his creation. Now, this is the end of Paul's speech. It's quite possible that Paul says more here, but that is all that is recorded in the book of Acts. He's trying to ultimately point, point people towards the gospel. Now, how do they respond? Verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. In one ear and out the other. They hear, but they don't listen. And they miss the point. Paul tried. Again, there isn't always fruitfulness in ministry and in evangelism. And I appreciate that a story like this is recorded in the book of Acts. Because you see a lot of stories in Acts where you see people coming to the Lord in droves. It's not the case here. It was not all unbridled success and victory. The people wanted to keep making their pagan sacrifices. Now, in verse 19, the tone changes, and we see Paul's opposition from his previous two stops have tracked him and Barnabas down. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Paul had tried to preach the gospel, but here we see the crowd was easily stirred up into an angry mob. I feel like it gets mentioned almost in passing, but it's very serious. Paul is so badly attacked that the people think that he's dead. David Peterson points out that you have Paul's opposition who have traveled over a hundred miles in the first century. It's not like they hopped in a car and drove to where Paul was, and it was a couple hours away. They had to go on a journey to find Paul. Is it because that they want to find this pagan Greek audience and tell them about the God of the Old Testament? No. They want to rile them up against Paul. It can be so easy to become known more by what we're against than what we're for. I'm not saying that we should shrink back from what we believe, because there's obviously things we're against. I'm against the devil. I'm against murder and killing, which includes killing of the unborn. I'm against lying, just to give a few examples. 
And we should oppose that which is sinful. But what are we for? We are for Jesus. We are for the gospel. We are for holiness and righteousness. We are for discipleship. The Jewish group came all the way to Lystra, not to build up, but to take down. Not to share a message of life, but to advocate for death. Ask yourself, for people who know you, and maybe you should ask the people who know you, do most of your views, opinions, things that you speak about reflect what you're against or what you're for? Because to share the good news of the gospel is to be for something. It's to be for forgiveness and for the life that Jesus invites us into and for the relationship that Jesus invites us into. We come to our third scene. Where we last saw Paul, he's been left for dead outside the city. That's quite the cost to share the good news of the gospel. Verse 20, and this scene I titled, A Hostile Response. Not my most clever section headings, but... Verse 20, But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. They just go to the next town. I'll be honest. If I'm walking around town and somebody's dog scares me, I'll totally change my route. But Paul almost gets beaten to death and just finds the next place. Verses 21 to 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The text says that they had made many disciples. They're having more success in Derby. The verse mentions that they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And if you've been paying attention the last couple weeks to the locations, what that means is that Paul is going back in reverse by the same route he had traveled. Why did Paul go that route? He didn't have to. There were other routes he could go, but he intentionally went back the same route that he came so that he could reconnect with the cities and churches he had already visited. He did it, as the text says, to strengthen the souls of the disciples and to encourage them in their faith. And that means he's returning to cities where people had already tried to have him killed. Disciple-making is a process. I think we often put a huge emphasis on that moment of conversion, and that's obviously important. But a baby Christian, someone new to the faith, cannot survive alone. Just like a baby person, I think of our son. He's totally helpless. Doesn't even know how to use the toaster. He needs people to take care of him. New Christians need to be nurtured and guided by those who are more mature in the faith. Now, Paul was not able to personally disciple every new convert, but he was also installing elders in the churches, entrusted with the spiritual care and leadership of those newly formed Galatian churches. 
verses 24 to 26. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. By the way, if you're paying really, really close attention, you might have noticed Antioch gets mentioned twice. It's because there's more than one Roman city called Antioch, just like how there's more than one U.S. city called Springfield. I know we've covered a lot in this wide-ranging passage. And chapters 13 and 14 are just Paul's first missionary journey. We saw the various stops that he made. We saw Paul and Barnabas ministering in different locations. We saw them sharing the gospel with people of different faiths, Jews and pagan Greeks. We saw some who received the message and some who didn't. And we even saw an angry mob attempt and think they successfully killed Paul. It is a whirlwind trek through Galatia. And with all of that, I love these last two verses. And when they arrived and gathered the church, so a little setup. They're back home now. They're out of Galatia. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Paul almost died. And his focus is on bringing people to life through Christ. All that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's where the focus is. Not, oh, it was so hard. It's not making much of Paul and Barnabas. It's making much of the gospel. Again, consider what Paul did. Traveling in first century Rome, meeting all sorts of different people. Life in danger, receptiveness and opposition. I'm not saying that needs to be all of us. Paul's like a Navy SEAL out there. We don't all need to be Navy SEALs. He did the maximum. But when it comes to sharing the good news of the gospel, so many Christians don't do anything. And my point isn't that we need to go out there and be just like Paul. But we have people all around us who we can reach. We have people around us who don't know Jesus. And so I'll point us back to really the first step of evangelism, which is to pray. To pray for opportunities, to pray for strength, for something that's so easy to not do, to share your faith. It's so much easier to not do it than to do it. So to pray. They would be proactive. To pray for people in your life who you know don't know Jesus, or people in your life who you question if they know Jesus. And to pray for them. And to pray for opportunities. And to pray that God would use you in their lives. To take that seriously as the first step of evangelism. And the more you're praying about it, and the more you're thinking about it, it's amazing how... It just seems like the more opportunities start to arise, the more things get said where you're already queued up, thinking about evangelism, thinking about sharing the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of the life that he gives. And someone says something, or you hear a concern or a fear that they have, and just providentially, these opportunities to step into that. Now, a person doesn't always come to faith, often doesn't come to faith with just one conversation. 
It's typically an ongoing process. But it's what all Christians are called to do. Again, we don't need to be Paul. But everyone in this room has people in our own lives who we have unique opportunities with, unique relationships with, where we can be light and where we can share the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, again, it, it's amazing to look at what Paul endured. Lord, we're blessed to live in a society that's not nearly as dangerous to share the gospel in. But so often we make it seem like it is. We make it seem so much scarier than it is. Lord, may we not shrink back. May we not be fearful. May we be proactively praying for people we know who don't know you. May we have opportunities arise, Lord, to share the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.